Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, he says that he wants you to have an apocalypse. And not in the way that we use that word today, like an earth-destroying meteorite or a horde of brain-eating zombies. Rather, this Greek word apocalypse means to uncover something that is hidden. Because that's what happened to Paul. He thought he was on the inside of God's grace and most everyone else was excluded. He was known as Saul then, and he protected his privileged status ferociously as he'd hunted and attacked early Jesus followers. But that's when the crucified and risen Jesus stopped him in his tracks to reveal to Saul that God is making all the divided things one. Paul calls this the mystery of the gospel, all things made one. And once this was revealed to him, it drastically changed how Paul saw the whole world, church, politics, relationships, literally everything. Ephesians, then, is Paul's response to his own apocalypse, a passionate essay summarizing the most important apocalyptic event in history, Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and the gift of the Spirit to bring new creation right here in the present world. And Ephesians is a letter written for us so that we might have our own epiphanies about this mysterious thing that God is doing. That's why this winter, during the season of Epiphany, Salthouse is reading through the book of Ephesians, about one chapter each Sunday, so that we might both comprehend this mystery of God's love. Paul spends chapters one through three focused on that, our hearing and understanding, and that we might respond to this mystery of God's love, which is what chapters four through six focus on, taking action. It's what we do. Are you ready to have an apocalypse now? to uncover something that is hidden that just might change everything. Only if we have ears to hear it can we have the heart to be it. But it's God's dream for all things to be made one. So let's dig in to the letter to the Ephesians. Better? There it is. Better. Sound is better. Hey, good morning, everyone. I'm Pastor Ryan. Chapter 2. Are you ready for this? Chapter 2. So every letter... Has, there's a reason why it's written, right? There's an occasion for the writing. So like when Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he's addressing abuses in the church, divisions in the church. When, when Paul writes to the Philippian church, he, it's like a thank you letter. He's, he's, he's writing his thank you letters. And he's saying, hey, thanks so much for like helping me out when I was in jail. You're like really good friends. Appreciate it. Thank you. So why does Paul write Ephesians? We hear it in the first chapter, and last week, this is kind of a previously. You guys remember this? He wants you to have an apocalypse. There we go. Thank you so much. An apocalypse, which, which you know, it's not like you know, the zombies and aliens and stuff. Like that. It's like he wants to reveal something. He wants something that was revealed to him to also be revealed to you. And that is what Paul is going to like really get into in this week in chapter 2. But we need to hear it first. And ding, you've got mail. Let's have uh, Hannah, Eli, you want to hand these out for us? Ta-da! These are called letters. They're papery. They come in a mailbox. They're amazing. You should check it out. Um, and then uh, spread those around. Eli, why don't you go on this side? Perfect. Okay. So, and actually, this is what um, this is what would have happened in the ancient world. Like a letter would have gone to a community, and not just one community, not just one church. A lot of times, these were cyclical letters. So they would go to like churches in a region. Um, so you know, you might find this. I'm going to nerd out for a second, okay? So you, while they're doing this, you you might find that there's sections of the letter 
to the church in Colossus, Colossians, that are really similar to this letter. Well, guess what? They're neighbors. Ephesus and Colossus, they're neighbors. So, um, it, yeah, Paul's like, you know, oh, yeah, this chunk, yeah. I, when I was there and I was talking to all of them, I talked about these things. I want to revisit that. Um, and the earliest manuscripts of Ephesians don't have the word Ephesus in it. So it was probably like to that whole valley in modern-day Turkey um, around that river that these churches were at. Okay, um, enough nerding out. There's going to be nerding out, more nerding out to come. So listen, if you, um, if you hear Paul in just a minute and you're like, I don't know what the heck he's talking about, awesome. That is a really great place to be because you can come to this text with like just with fresh ears, with lots of curiosity. Um, and if you grew up with Paul, will you do yourself a huge favor and try to be in that first category? And just forget it. Just forget what you know about Paul and hear it for the first time. Are you ready? Let's hear it. Y'all were dead because of y'all's sins and offenses, which y'all committed in y'all's allegiance both to the present age and to the ruler of the power of the air, that spirit who is even now at work among the children of rebellion. And all of us were among them. We lived at the flesh, at the level of the flesh, following every whim of the flesh, every fancy of this age, and so by nature deserved God's wrath like the rest. But God, rich in mercy and loving us so much, brought us to life in Christ even when we were dead in our sins. It is through this grace that we have been saved. God raised us up and in union with Christ Jesus gave us a place in the heavenly realm to display in ages to come how immense are the resources of God's grace and kindness in Christ Jesus. And it is by grace that y'all have been saved through faith, and even that is not of yourselves, but the gift of God. Nor is it a reward for anything that y'all have done, so nobody can claim the credit. We are God's work of art, created in Christ Jesus to the, do the good things God created us to do from the beginning. Bear in mind that at one time, the men among y'all who were Gentiles, physically called the uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcised, all because of a minor operation, had no part in Christ and were excluded from the community of Israel. Y'all were strangers to the covenant and its promise. Y'all were without hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, y'all who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For Christ is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of hostility that kept us apart. In his own flesh, Christ abolished the law with its commands and ordinances in order to make the two into one new person, thus establishing peace and reconciling us all to God in one body through the cross, which put to death the enmity between us. Christ came and announced the good news of peace to y'all who were far away and to those who were near. For through Christ, we all have access in one spirit to our God. 
This means that y'all are strangers and aliens no longer. No, y'all are included in God's holy people and are members of the household of God, which is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus as the capstone. In Christ, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in our God. In Christ, in Christ, y'all are being built into this temple to become a dwelling place of God in the spirit. With love from Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to the church at Salt House. Clap for script. I love that. That's great. Um, Arlene, I didn't know you were from Texas. Are you from Texas? I didn't either. No, you didn't know. No, so all the U's in the letter are plural, and that's why we've tried. I mean, we don't have a, a great way to say that in English, but I mean, it is a great way. It is a great way. Let's be real. It's a great way to say that. Um, okay, so is that super clear to everyone? Did everyone get that? Okay, great. <laughs> um, let's try to unpack some of this together. We are not going to be able to cover everything, but I want to try, I want to give you some insights into a few of these reoccurring terms that Paul uses, and we could just spend a whole month studying this, but we've only got about 20 minutes, so put your big kid pants on, and let's just, let's get into this. Um, first, I want you to notice something in your, and, and you've got uh, a pen there maybe, like feel free just to like write on your letter, circle things, bracket things. I want you to notice that there's a method to Paul's writing here. Paul is telling in this chapter two parallel stories of rescue. And he uses two sets of metaphors to do it. And both of these stories begin with a kind of once upon a time. And I know that we said um, that Apocalypse isn't about zombies and aliens, but surprise, those are actually the two metaphors that Paul uses. <laughs> and he starts by saying, y'all are zombies. Y'all are dead. Really actually dead? Well, yes, you weren't living in any meaningful way. So remember, remember what you used to be like. You were the walking dead. You were zombies. You were dehumanized and dehumanizing. You know, like all of our movies about zombies, or all of these modern movies, you know, this kind of craze, I think underneath all of it is our real theological themes. Because at their core, these films are a critique on society. It's like the terrifying human experience of feeling dead on the inside even though we're alive on the outside. Life without purpose or meaning or hope. Life without joy or trust or love. And we're technically alive, but not really living. Enslaved as if something else is in control of us. But we just can't put our finger on what that is. And this, I think this is what Paul has in mind too. I think Paul would love zombie movies. But Paul has this multi-layered explanation for our zombiness. So why do we suffer from zombiness? Ephesians 2.1, y'all were dead because of y'all's offenses, which y'all committed in y'all's allegiance, both to the present age and to the ruler of the power of the air, 
that spirit who is even now at work among the children of rebellion. So why? Why the zombiness? Because we've given over our loyalty, not to the creator, but to two things, present age, ruler of the power of the air. What is going on here? <laughs> what is Paul talking about? What does he mean by the present age? And what or who are these rulers and powers? This isn't the first time that Paul's even talked about this in this letter. You remember he, he mentioned it earlier in, in chapter 1. He's going to mention it throughout the letter, actually. And to be honest with you, these terms are things that I've just, like, skipped over in the past. I didn't know what to do with these terms, you know? Because uh, I think it's really easy for us, kind of in our, our, our modern Western minds to hear this and think like horned devils with like cloven tongues and tails and like in, lurking in the, uh, did, <laughs> did anyone um, grow up with the novels This Present Darkness? Yeah. You remember that, right? Just like demons, like lurking around every corner, right? I think it's easy for us to think, well, this is what Paul's talking about and I'm kind of like, I don't know, Paul's kind of a primitive thinker, I guess. But Paul is far more sophisticated and nuanced in his cosmology than we give him credit for. And if we try to skip over this term that Paul keeps using about the rulers and powers, I think we're going to have a really tough time understanding Paul at all. Okay? So here's, here's what um, a number of scholars think that Paul means. It's not a singular thing. The power of the rulers is not a singular thing. It's not simply spiritual. And it's not simply physical. It is physical, but it's not simply physical. And it's, it's political, too. And it's economic. And it's social. For Paul, the powers can be all of those things in kind of this complex relationship, interconnection between them. So when we look at Paul's writings, we see that by rulers and powers, at times Paul might mean just like one human ruler. You know, he'll talk about the powers or the rulers as like maybe the high priest or maybe the ruler of the Roman Empire. But then at times, Paul also means the systems of domination and dehumanization at work. That's, that's at work regardless of the specific ruler. Are you following me so far? And it can't just be boiled down to one person. At times, it's just, it's more generalized. It's, it's, um, it's abstracted, like a societal value or a social pressure. But Paul also believes this force has this spiritual unseen dimension to it. So, for instance, when, when Paul saw Roman soldiers extorting bribes from people, the powers. When Paul saw Christians dragged off to the Colosseum, the powers at work. When Paul saw Christians dividing themselves along ethnic or economic lines in the church, he was like, yo, y'all, y'all are giving your allegiance over to the powers and rejecting allegiance to the creator. See how this is, is working in Paul's mind? So for instance, I think Paul would see the example of American racism as just a really accurate example of the, all these unseen layers of the powers. Racism, like, so racism is a force that's at work among us and in us, but that's not simply the case, right? Racism is, 
isn't simply a contemptuous action or attitude that one person does against another based on racial identity, because it's baked into our system. It's baked into our institutions, our communities and families. It controls us through our bias and the stories that we tell ourselves. You could say that racism is an unseen power that's in the air, a ruler in the air, so to speak, a ruler of this present age. Paul would say it's one of the powers that works to divide us, has an unseen spiritual force at play. Is this making sense to you? So especially in chapter 6, Paul wants to make it really clear that it's not human beings that we're struggling against. If it was human beings that we were struggling against, then we could just justify dehumanizing them. No. There's something more going on here. And this way of seeing the world has been shared by most of humanity for most of our existence, that what we see is not the full extent of what's at play. So I think in order for us kind of modern uh, Western materialists to understand Paul, we got to get into his way of thinking. Okay, so why are we zombies? Because without even knowing it, we've allied ourselves with dehumanizing powers at work around us. And the result is that it's left us dead inside. It's dehumanized us from the inside out. We become enslaved to these powers. So those of us in recovery or 12-step programs, we've got a great insight into this reality that we all face. Paul's simply reciting the first step here. I'm powerless to addiction. My life is unmanageable, but I trust that there is a power greater than myself who can restore my sanity. So, first part of the story. Second part, what does God do with zombies who are hell-bent on destroying humanity, and what will transform humanity? Paul says God brings us to life through a force called grace. Next part. Um, Paul writes, uh, check, out, check it in your letter. But God, rich in mercy and loving us so much, brought us to life in Christ, even though we were dead in our sins. It's through grace we've been saved. Like the powers, like grace is one of these religious terms that gets thrown around a lot in church, and um, it might be different than, than how we hear it. So the word for grace in Greek is charis. Maybe you've got friends named charis. I've got one friend named charis. Um, but it simply is the word for gift. It's just the word for gift. Which, as you know, like gift giving can be kind of complicated sometimes. Um, we just, uh, just a month ago, experienced a lot of gift giving. And so maybe there was, um, I don't know, maybe that was complicated for you, I don't know. Uh, did you feel seen and known? by a gift? Uh, did you feel burdened by any gifts? Were there any strings attached to any gifts? Or did you feel liberated by a gift? So in our Western kind of way of thinking about gift or grace, what's the ideal gift to us? Here's a live question. Unconditional, Unconditional. yeah, right, totally, that's the ideal. It's unconditional. Um, but I, this was shocking to me when I learned this. This might be shocking to you, too. 
it's probably not what Paul has in mind when he's describing God's good gift of grace. So let's see what he says about it. Um, uh, let's read together. It, it is by grace that y'all have been saved through faith or trust. And even that trust is not of yourselves, but the gift of God. Nor is it a reward for anything that y'all have done so that nobody can claim credit for it. Because we're God's work of art. We're created in Christ Jesus to do good things. God created us to do from the beginning. So now let's, now let's go to that slide, Jay. So follow me here. Um, what we could see here and in other places in Paul's writings is that God's gift, God's grace, is unconditioned. See it with the ED? There's nothing that you can do to receive this gift of new humanity that God's giving you. It's just, it's utterly freely given to you. But is there any obligation attached to it? Is there any string attached to it? Right? Paul says, to do good works that we're created to do. We're freed for something, for a reason, to live out this purpose, to be God's blessing in the world like Pastor Sarah was talking about last week. How does this definition of grace sit with you? It might take a minute to digest this. Paul, is he's going to make it even more complicated because he says that yet even this response that's obligated from you is both inspired and empowered by God's gift. So the motivation to respond is from the gift itself, is from the grace itself. The empowerment to do the thing is from the grace, from the gift itself. He speaks about grace as if it's like this force within him that's giving him the energy and the desire to respond to God's gift, the thing that he's obligated to. So he's left with this kind of existential question. Is it me? Am I doing this thing? Or is it God? Is it God in me that's doing this thing? And the, these, all these lines are blurry now to Paul. He, he can't really figure it out. He's like, uh, I can't tell anymore. Because there's this mysterious thing happening that's called union. All things becoming one. And this is what Paul calls the new humanity. Are you still tracking with me? This is dense. If you're like checking out, I don't blame you. This is like, this is really dense stuff. But this, um, this mind-bending stuff is what Paul's talking about. I, I had such a hard time this week just like getting my head around this and then thinking about how am I going to communicate this to people? I think Paul's really smarter than me. He's not a primitive thinker at all. Holy cow. Okay, that's the first story. That's the first story about zombies, powers, and the gift to transform humanity. And then Paul's going to start over again. But this time, it's about aliens, dividing walls, and a new temple. Woof! Are you ready? Here's what Paul says. Y'all were aliens, strangers to the covenant and its promise, excluded, foreigners, on the outside of what God was doing, without hope and without God in the world. This used to work for Paul. Because uh, he was on the inside of this division, 
and it fed his sense of superiority, his religious and national arrogance that exalted one ethnic group over all the others. It segregated him from all the other nations. Um, don't you wonder what Paul would think about the state of the American church right now? Maybe, maybe this is Paul's letter to America, I don't know. But Paul thought this way, and he discovers that he's got it all wrong. Division was not, is not, was never God's intention at all. God's promise to Abraham was for Israel to be a blessing to the nations for the sake of inclusion. So let's read what God's doing about it. The next verse is, But now in Christ Jesus, y'all who were once far off have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. And here with this term, Paul is using uh, sacrificial language. He's using temple language. So he's trying to get your brain into the temple right now. Uh, which is kind of a foreign concept for us. We don't have a lot of, you know, temples and sacrificial altars around. So that's hard to get our head into. For Christ is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of hostility that kept us apart. If you were to visit the temple in Paul's day, you'd first come into this like really large um, courtyard here. We can see it here. You'd come into this really large courtyard, and then surrounding, and, like, and both Jews and Gentiles could be in this courtyard. It was just kind of for everybody. You could sell things there, stuff like that. Um, and then surrounding this next kind of inner layer here, you would see a barrier. You'd come to a barrier, a dividing wall that quite literally Gentiles could not pass through. And you'd see a sign, and the sign, you, I don't know if you can read this here, but it says this. No, this is um, a historic block that was like found in the rubble. It's just, you know, it's, but it's just a sign. It's just like a street sign. No stranger is to enter within the dividing wall, dividing barrier around the temple and enclosure. Whoever is caught will be himself responsible for his ensuing death. Thanks for coming. Please come again. <laughs> the temple management. So Paul is using this metaphor to describe this ethnic and religious division and hostility, intense hostility. And he's sneaking into this temp, all this temple language. So Paul uh, goes on. In his own flesh, Christ abolished the law with its commands and ordinances in order to make the two into one new humanity. The two into one. This is marriage language here thus establishing peace and reconciling us all to God in one body through the cross, which put to death the enmity between us. Do you hear that last part? Do you see it in your letter there? Which put to death the enmity between us. This is a fascinating question. According to Paul, who got killed on the cross? It's not what he says here. I mean, yes. I mean, yes. But there's, he says something else here. That's, what is it? Yeah. The enmity. Paul says what dies on the cross is this long-held racial enmity between Jews and Gentiles. There's a lot of atonement theories out there. I've never heard this before. I've never heard this one. And think about it this way. What are the two institutions who condemn Jesus to death? Yeah. So, yeah, we've got the Roman Empire, right? 
and the Jewish leaders, uh, the religious leadership, right? So we've got this uh, military state power, and we've got this religious power, right? And during a century of foreign occupation, these two powers, they've not gotten along very well, have they? There's hostility. And Jesus brings onto himself both of their hostilities between Israel and their occupiers. And then Jesus does not kill his enemies, but allows that enmity to die with him on the cross. This is a mystery that Paul's speaking. If you're like kind of scratching your head about it, it's because we're in the realm of mystery here, right? This might be a new way of understanding the cross for you. I don't know. Paul would not have believed the words that he's saying right now about the coming together of these long-held enemies if he did not already see it happening in the church. He's seeing the results at work in the church. In Ephesus, Jews and Gentiles eating at the same table, sacrificing for each other, uh, sharing resources, sharing their paychecks with one another. I mean, like, I don't know. This, like, do you all want to do that? You want to share your paychecks with one another? Selling land to help one another out, right? Praising the one God together as if they were all one new family is mind-boggling to Paul. And why? Jesus. Jesus. So then, now we're at the last part. So here's the big conclusion to Paul's two stories about zombies becoming new humanity, about aliens, strangers, the excluded becoming family. He comes to this. This means that Y'all are strangers and aliens no longer. You're no longer zombies. You're no, no longer enslaved to the powers. Those old identities have died. They were, just, they were just too small to contain you. They don't fit you anymore. No, y'all are included in God's holy people, citizens, and are members of the household of God, which is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus as the capstone. Y'all are stones now. In Christ, the whole building is joined together. It rises to become a holy... It's a growing building. It's a building that's growing. In Christ, y'all are being built into this temple to become a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Like I said, like we don't have a lot of context for um, temples in our culture. Um, but the temple represents this place where things that are like fully separated, heaven and earth, two utterly separate things, come together and are united in in a place. That's what the temple represents, this place where God's presence, God's spirit lives. But here's what Paul's saying now. That's what you all are. You all are the place where heaven and earth are one. You are. You are. You are. You're the presence of God walking around. You're the physical expression of Jesus himself. This, this is the apocalypse, the big mystery, the open secret that Paul says was there all along, but only now does he get it. He wants 
the Ephesians to comprehend it. Are you beginning to comprehend this mystery? And Paul didn't know about y'all. He didn't know about uh, us here in Kirkland. But if he did, he would want you to comprehend it too. And I, I, I want to comprehend it. And I want you to comprehend it. Because this is what God is doing to make all things, all things one. Amen.